Good, so then we're um, back in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, we've had a few weeks uh, reflecting on some of the truths of Easter, uh, but now we're back into uh, our series of uh, Bible studies in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be carrying on for a few more weeks now. This is the last kind of lap, the last leg of the journey. It's been quite a, a long one over, over a period of time. We've taken weeks off and so on and so forth. But uh, this opportunity, once again, to kind of learn uh, with the Corinthian believers, this community of believers in this city uh, in the Roman world called Corinth. Uh, we, we've been kind of, uh, if you're relatively new, we've been kind of looking over their shoulders, you know, learning as, uh, listening in on what they've been learning as uh, the Apostle Paul who uh, started that church in Corinth and is now writing to them, encouraging them. We're learning kind of over their shoulders, so to speak. And uh, you may remember a few weeks ago, uh, we, we kind of started this final section uh, from chapter 12, where it's clear that the, the uh, Corinthian believers themselves, they'd sent some, some cor- there'd been some correspondence between them and Paul, and they've asked him questions about spiritual matters or, or spirituals, as it's kind of in the original, that's not kind of, uh, you know, gospel songs of the South in America, you know, spirituals, but, but spiritual things, spirituality and uh, spiritual gifts, and he's been answering these questions. And as we've uh, been thinking, uh, we've been reminded that actually spirituality or, or experiencing the supernatural was, a, was quite a big thing for them in their old lives before they became followers of Jesus, their old temple worship uh, would have involved certain kind of ecstatic experiences, people being out of control uh, and kind of uh, moved by, by the, the, the kind of deities that they were trying to worship and so on. Uh, and last time we were in Corinthians, about three weeks ago, Louise was uh, taking us through the first half of this chapter. Um, I'm going to review some of it, but let me just encourage you, please do get, if you weren't here, if you missed it, do get the... Uh, the CD at the back, or, or go online and, and listen to it, uh, because uh, we're, we're kind of in the middle of this section, or this final section, we're getting towards the last part of it, and uh, we really need to kind of uh, pick it up, really, from where we were before. Paul's already laid down some key principles in these, these chapters about how this community of believers should operate in terms of the gifts that they're to use and the way God has gifted them in different ways, in a whole diversity of ways and how he's done that for certain reasons. He's talked as well in chapter 13 about how love is the overriding principle governing the way they should be behaving and using these gifts. And and here in chapter 14, as we were reminded earlier, He's addressing some of their particular questions, their particular issue, which for them was around the gift of speaking in tongues. That was a, a big deal for them. Uh, and, and as we uh, looked at it last time, uh, we, we began to kind of unpack that a bit. Just to remind us, though, um, speaking in tongues was, was part of New Testament experience. Uh, what happens is, is that somebody may be speaking words of, of prayer or praise in a language or in a form that's not understood by the person using it. It's as if God, the Holy Spirit, is enabling them to pray or to praise in, 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 in a way that they don't understand. Uh, as Paul says in chapter uh, 14, verse 2, he says, If anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, it's usually it's a form of prayer, usually to God. 
Um, but it's very helpful for the person using it. And Paul says it, it builds up the person who's using that gift as they, they use that gift and they, they're able to bring their prayer and their praise prompted by the Holy Spirit to God. It builds them up. And Paul tells them it's a great gift. In fact, he says in verse 5 and verse 18 that he uses it himself. But he's saying to them in, in the chapter, it's not a gift that really helps build other people up because they don't understand what's being said. And so he says to them in the first half of chapter 14, and he's going to go on in this section as well to say, look guys, when you're together, um, because the Corinthians, it seems, really love the gift of tongues, they were using it a lot in their public worship and so on and so forth, he's saying to them, look, look guys, when you're together, um, you know, if you're going to speak in tongues, well, just make sure that there's an interpretation so people can understand what's going on and so that everybody can be built up or edified, as the uh, NIV translate it. And I just want to make a few comments, uh, because uh, those of us who were here three weeks ago may remember that on that, on that day, someone spoke in tongues as part of our, our response in our worship time. And they asked the elders if they could do that beforehand, and they did so, and were encouraged to share. Now, they had asked the Lord for an interpretation, and he gave them an interpretation. And after a pause they gave the interpretation for, for us all to hear, and it was helpful. Now, what perhaps many of you don't know was that on that, at that same time afterwards, three different people spoke to me uh, and told me, and there may be more, <laughs> three only that spoke to me, who said, actually, in the time between hearing the tongue and before the interpretation came, they sensed a burden from God about what he might be saying in that tongue, and uh, they were a little bit shy, maybe, to kind of speak up and say something. But, but when Jan shared the interpretation, it exactly chimed in three different people with what the Lord had kind of put on their hearts. So I just wanted to share that with you, because I think that's encouraging, to see, because it, it, it kind of reveals how the Lord is working among us. So you might be asking them, well, does that mean that tongues is, is just prophecy then? Or is, is, is prophecy in, a, in another language? You know, like it says uh, in the gift of prophecy, this is, a, we'll see in a minute, God giving a word to somebody for, for, in, in an understandable language for others to hear. Well, what I just want to say, as Louise said, that we've all got L plates on in this area. We're not hugely experienced as a church in the use of these gifts. But verses 1 to 2 do seem to be saying that this is a prayer language to God. The prayer is prayed in another language and the Holy Spirit provides that prayer. And maybe the interpretation is, is as much an indication of what we can be praying for or what we should be praying for as a result of what we understand from the interpretation. So in a sense it's a bit similar to a prophetic word given but I think there is a subtle difference. The interpretation of that particular tongue was, was don't be afraid to use the gifts that God gives us. And that's something that was prayed in the tongue, and it's something we can take on board in the interpretation and continue to pray for ourselves individually or as a church community. To pray that God will help us not to be afraid to use what he's given us. But as we're praying that, we're responding to something that has come from God. So the effect is the same once we know what the interpretation is. 
And Paul, in the first half and the second half of chapter 14, also talks about this other spiritual gift that he's highlighted in, in explaining it or helping the Corinthians, and that's the gift of prophecy. And that's where God speaks through a person using words that can be understood. And, and, and lots of ways that happens. It, I hope and trust it's happening now as we look at God's word together. It might be in a time of prayer. Someone has a particular sense of the Lord saying something and, and prays that or shares it with somebody. A whole host of ways where God can, can speak into our lives or into a, a situation where God gives his perspective on something. It's not like scripture. It doesn't come with the kind of authority of scripture. It needs to be weighed, as Louise said, and, and we'll see something of that later in this passage. But Paul is saying, look guys, that's a better gift to use when you're together because it builds everyone up. And we use the gift of tongues, if it's not interpreted, it builds up the person using the gift of tongues. Use the gift of prophecy, it builds everyone up. And Paul is saying the whole point is that the body gets built up. So as we summarize, as Paul talks to them at Corinth, he's saying, look, tongues is a great gift. It's great when it's used individually, but when it's used in a corporate place, in a small group or a public meeting or in some other place, it really needs to be interpreted. And prophecy is even better in a group, a public place, because everyone knows what's going on. And he's going to say more about that in these passages. So he's trying to get the Corinthians back on track. Their use of the gift of tongues was not really going too well for them, like quite a lot of other things in their congregation. And verse 20 tells us why. So let's have a look at verse 20. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, look, you know, whatever gifts you use, whatever you do in your worship, look, let's get this one thing straight. You need to grow up in your thinking. He said that to them before. That's why we've, we've called this series Grow Up. He said it right back in the beginning, in, in, in the early chapters of 1 Corinthians. He says, look, you're to be grown up in your thinking. He's saying to the, the Corinthians, Corinthians, you're, you're a bit like spiritual adolescents, and you need to start behaving like grown-ups. He said, not in regard to evil. He said, you know, when it comes to doing what's wrong, the more naive you are, the better. You know, you don't need to know about all the kind of um, amounts of evil on offer, all the stuff he's been talking about in Corinthians, you know, to do with pagan stuff and, and, and dinners and, you know, orgies and all of that. Paul is saying, yeah, yeah, be as naive, you know, be like a preschooler as far as those things are concerned. But in terms of your thinking, thinking about your worship, thinking about what happens when you're together, you really need to grow up. He's telling them to think, not just to act on impulse, even on a Holy Spirit impulse, if you like. Don't just act on impulse. Don't just carry on like you always used to do when you were pagans. Don't strut around trying to be more spiritual than the next person because you're using this gift or that gift or whatever. He's saying, no, before you do anything, stop a minute and think. He's telling them that thinking matters. Uh, thinking is a good way to approach these issues of, of how we are as we're together in worship. Earlier he said, hadn't, hadn't he, in that last passage, he said, I'm going to pray with my mind and I'll pray with my spirit. 
He said, you know, you, when you pray, when the Holy Spirit leads you in prayer, it's not uh, that the, the Holy Spirit, he is not kind of diverting, turning off your mind. It's not either mind or spirit. He's saying, look, you want to use your mind. You see, the Corinthians may well have had this idea that if you kind of turn off your mind, you're somehow more spiritually open. Paul is saying, no. You need to be thinking. You need to have your minds turned on. And he's going to give us three ways that we need to be thinking about approaching and as we're worshipping together. He said, to think that the mind is not spiritual, that's the old way. Paul is saying, look, you're not to be like you were when you were pagans, kind of out of your heads when you're worshipping Jesus. That kind of out of your heads type worship, that belonged to the old way. He's saying, no, you know, we worship in the spirit. We, I say, I'll pray with my mind as well. It's not either or. Use your minds, he says. Think about how you are as you come together. Be like grown-ups. When you're together, what are you like? What do you reveal about yourselves when you're together as a community? And he gives us three things to think about. Three ways of thinking which tells us a lot about what church is meant to be for us as we gather. Let's have a look at verse 21 to 25 then. In the law it is written, through men uh, of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he or she will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. First way of thinking, Paul says, look, you need to think with a wider perspective. You need to think a bit broadly here. First of all, he quotes the Old Testament. Good to have the, the perspective of Scripture, isn't it? We should see at the end, he actually refers to, at the end of the passage to what he's writing as, as Scripture. This letter that he's writing, Paul pretty much claims that to be at the same level. But not only from the perspective of Scripture, but he also says, I want you to think a bit wider about what's going on when you're together. In particular, he says, I want you to be thinking about not just whether you're going to use your gift and you know, how good you look and how exciting the worship is and etc., etc. He's saying, I want you to think about those people in your gathering who are not yet believers. That's what he's saying. Think a bit wider. You see, you know, kids... Um, they don't really think of anyone else very easily, do they? You know, we have to kind of teach them to think of others than themselves. They're a bit in the moment. They do what they want. It's all about them, isn't it? It's all about them. Paul says, don't be like that. Think about more than your desire to look good or your desire to have a great time using your particular favourite gift, he's saying to the Corinthians. Think about the impact on those people who will be in your community who are not yet believers. And he quotes from the Old Testament from Isaiah, that, that little phrase there, you see it on the page, it's from Isaiah. 
And the key thing about Isaiah's prophecies, you will see if you read the early parts of his chapter, Isaiah had a really tough job. Do you remember when he was called? He saw the God in all his holiness, had an awesome, just about the most amazing experience of God that anyone could have. He saw God's throne. He heard angels saying, holy, holy, holy. He heard the, the, the living God say, who's going to go for us? Who shall I send? And Isaiah says, yeah, I'll go, send me. And God says, go and tell this nation. Then he says, by the way, Isaiah, they're not going to take a blind bit of anything, a blind bit of notice of anything you say to them. That was Isaiah's ministry. Tough. And, and Isaiah was, was bringing God's word to, uh, to the nation uh, of Israel and Judah at a point when they'd already pretty much set their hearts against God. And in some ways, like other Old Testament prophets, his prophecy kind of confirmed them in their unbelief. Yet God is reaching out to them, longing for them to respond. But they don't. They don't want God's way. And part of Isaiah's prophecy is that one of the signs will be that in the future when they're judged, they'll be invaded and people from outside of Israel will come and they'll hear these strange languages and that will confirm them actually that it's over, that God's judging them. And that sign, when they heard the, the strange people coming into their land with a strange uh, language, was the sign that it was over. It was the final nail in the coffin. And what Paul is saying is that if people here come into your, your church meetings or the Corinthians gathering and everyone's just talk, speaking in tongues and no one knows what's going on and, and it, it, there's no interpretation and it's just chaotic and it's confusing, then what about the unbeliever? The person who's not a believer just remains excluded. They're just out of it completely. And they'll, they'll, he says oh, you know, they'll be kind of separated from the from the people around them, they say, you're mad. They say, I might as well get out of here. Um, this isn't for me. Uh, and, and hearing unexplained tongues is almost like a, a, it confirms them in their unbelief. They go out of the door less willing to believe than they were when they came in. That's what Paul is saying. It's a sign that works in that way. But, he says, if someone comes in to your gathering and hears people you know, speaking in a, in, a, in a language they can understand or perhaps in interpreted tongues, but he's really pushing for prophecy or for speaking God's word clearly. He says they hear somebody, you know, sharing something about what God's done in their lives or they hear the Bible uh, taught or they, there's something else that happens or they sit down and pray with someone who, who says, I think God is, you know, saying this and I want to pray this for you or whatever it is, what do they do? Are they confirmed in their unbelief? No, they think, whoa, you know, God is here. That's what Paul's point is here. And he says to the, the Corinthians, think wider. Think about the impact on what you're doing is going to have on those people in your community who don't yet know the Lord for yourself, for themselves. Now it's interesting, before we move on, there's an assumption here, which I'd love you know, us to know more and more of. The assumption is that it's normal in a community of believers for us to be sharing our time and our space, even as we gather to worship with those who are on the journey, who are not yet believers. And uh, I'm sure there are a few of you here. I'm not going to look at anyone. I look at the ceiling. Um, because and we want to welcome people like that. And we want you to feel at home. And we want uh, what we're doing to be accessible. And as a leadership and as we lead the services and we talk about it the staff, we want what we're doing to be kind of welcoming for people who are not yet sure of where they are as believers. 
We want that to be the norm, don't we? We do. I do. Some of you do as well. Most of us do, I think. And we also want it to be the norm, because the other thing Paul assumes is that it's normal for God to be speaking and doing things and saying things. And for, for people who, who are not within the kind of close or, or, or the inner part of the Christian community, those who are on the journey looking in, to, to, to be able to see what God is doing, that God is doing stuff. And don't we want that to be normal as well? We do. Let's pray and work and be open to that. So that's the first thing. Think about the wider perspective, Paul says. Grow up in your thinking. Think wider. Secondly, he says, in verses 26 to 32, let's see what he then goes on to say. What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or three, at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the church should keep, uh, sorry, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Think about the wider purpose, Paul says. Paul suggests that, yeah, it's a great picture. He says that when you meet, everyone could have something to share. It's possible that everyone could share something. But he says there are limits. He said you can choose to limit the way you share. So for one thing he's saying, so when you're coming together, Corinthians, you're not all out of control, you know, you're able to limit yourself or be disciplined about how you share and what you say. And he said that all of that is done by a governing principle. And what's the governing principle? It's in verse 26. For the strengthening of the church. Just as he said before, the point of coming together is to build people up. So he says, we're going to set limits. You know, not everybody has to say everything every week. You know, and that's why he says that, you know, a certain number in their context of tongue speakers or a certain number of prophecies. And it's interesting, he's he's not, you know, he has an assumption that it's a community in in which everyone can share in some way. It's interesting how we work that out in a congregation like this. Sometimes that's easier in a smaller group or in a smaller congregation, but we need to think and pray about, about, about how we might do that. But there's this wider principle, the purpose. Think about why you're together, and the reason you're together, he said, is so that the church, the community, is built up. That's the governing principle. And he applies the same governing principle to prophecy, doesn't he? There it is in verse 31. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Again, he said, you need to think about the purpose of why you're here, which is to build everyone up, to encourage everyone. Uh, And so he says, you need to limit the way you use the gift of prophecy, he's saying in this context. It could mean that he's saying, have only two or three prophecies and then before you then have people weighing them. He talks about people weighing them. And again, it's a bit of um, interesting the way 
uh, different people read this in different ways, that it, people think, well, is that the prophets who weigh, the people using the gift who weigh it? There's quite a strong indication, no, that it's the whole community, actually, that weigh the words that are given, which I trust we do. I trust you don't all go home and, you know, say what I say, you know, well, it's just what I say. I hope you weigh it and think it through. And, you know, when Peter shares something or when somebody shares something in a prayer time or when the elders share something, when we, to next, uh, next Sunday, when we talk about the building, what's God saying to us about the building program and built the building project? You know, what's he saying to all of us as a whole community? We're weighing it, we're judging it, we're, we're sharing that together. So again, the norm that's assumed here is that when we come together, we come with a mindset to give. He says everyone comes with something to share. Have you ever thought about that as you come to church? You come in, well, what could I share with someone today? Not that you're necessarily going to do the sermon, but you know, you're going to sit by somebody? And what if God's given me something to share with that person afterwards? Or... You know, if I, you know, how am I going to make my conversation a bit more intentional? Or if there's an opportunity to, to pray out loud, are you going to come with something that you want to share? You know, are we coming to church with a sense of we're coming with something to give, not just with a mentality to receive? To be involved, to share insights the Lord might give us. To give way to one another. Maybe that's something we'll need to practice in the forum next week. You know, that idea of, you know, someone will want something to say and someone will say something else and we'll have to give way to the other person and so on. That, that's something important in house groups. Is, again, in a, in a smaller group where everyone's free to, to share, but that doesn't mean everyone has to say everything all of the time. There needs to be a kind of a giving way to one another in, a, in the community as you share together. Responding to the Lord. So grow up in our thinking. Secondly, not just think about the wider perspective, but think about the purpose that we're here. To build one another up and to be built up by God. And finally, look at verses 33 to 40. It's really verse 33 and then 36 to 38, but I'm going to read the the whole passage. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. He says, as in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they would ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. That seems to be a bit that doesn't quite fit in, because verse 36 goes straight on from verse 33. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Verse 36, did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he's a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. What's the third bit of their thinking? Verse 33, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Think about what God is like. You see, he says to them, your worship is meant to reflect the character of God. God is a God of order. He's a God of peace. He's a God of wholeness. It's not all crazy and chaotic and out of control with God, is it? And and Paul is saying to the Corinthians, your worship should paint a picture, should be a signpost pointing to what God is like. And he says in verse 36, look, it's not just you. It's not just you doing your own thing, Corinthians. 
The word of God, it's the word of God you're responding to. It's not just come to you. You're part of a wider community of believers across the, the world at the time. He says the word of God is shaping you. They're being shaped, actually, he says, by Paul's writing. That's the bit I referred to earlier, verse 37. If anybody thinks he's a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. He's saying, this is as, this is as kind of heavy as it gets, he's saying. This is authoritative. This is what I'm saying to you. And you need to be responding to God's word, Corinthians. You need to be thinking about what God is like, what his word says, and you need to be reflecting that to others. You're not to just take an opt-in or opt-out view of what I'm saying, says Paul. Now, we need to get that challenge as well. Do we see the awesome, heart-stopping truth that what we do when we come together is not just some Sunday club. (laughs) This is God's word we're responding to. It's God's presence that we approach. So we're not just free to do our own thing, necessarily. We need to be shaped by God's truth and God's character. We're part of the wider body of Christ, too. We want to reflect God's character in our worship together. It's a holy thing we're doing when we're together like this. It doesn't mean it's not joyful. Holiness doesn't mean misery, does it? (laughs) but it does mean that sense of knowing who we worship and whose presence we're in. Let's never forget it. Let's never forget that it's about what God is like. It's all about God. It's not about us. About our favourite gifts or a fear of our unfavourite gifts or whatever it is. It's not about that. It's about God. So let's think about what is God like and reflect that. So says Paul, in the light of that, use the gifts when you're together. Long for God to speak to you, he says in prophecy, and don't forbid speaking in tongues. There it is. Now what about verses 34 to 36? It's a tricky passage, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm gonna be very quick on this. <laughs> There's reasons for that. Some manuscripts put it at the end, put it after verse 40. So even some early manuscripts seem to be saying it doesn't quite fit somehow in the place where it is. Uh, Some scholars even wonder whether it wasn't perhaps added later by somebody else, but we don't know that. The manuscript doesn't say that. That's just from from evidence. And once you start doing that with the Bible, you know, you're onto a bit of a, a dodgy slope. But very quickly, what it can't mean... Okay, It cannot mean that women are not meant to say anything in church at all. It simply cannot mean that, because Paul would be contradicting himself. He'd be contradicting himself in chapter 14. In chapter 14, he's been saying, you can all speak in tongues. I want you all to prophesy. When you come together, all of you are doing this, that, and that. So Paul is, you know, and if Paul had meant that, you know, when you come together, you can all speak in tongues, oh, except the women, he would have said so. And, and we know from earlier on in the series, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he, he specifically talks about the, the right way for women to be leading prayers and, and, and prophesying. 
you know, we looked at all of that in 1 Corinthians 11. So, and you know, somebody said, well, that means it was silent prayer. But you can't, yeah, maybe, but I don't think so. But, but you can't have silent prophecy, can you? Unless you're telepathic or something. <laughs> So it simply cannot mean and, and, and that it's a kind of blanket silence that women have got to just shut up in church and, and not say a word. So it can't mean that. So what can it mean? We don't really know. There you go. What a frustrating... We don't know. What it might mean. Let me tell you what it might mean. It could be that it's a local issue to Corinth. It could have been something that made absolute sense to them at the time. A little clue to that is the way he says, it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. That's the same phrase that is used in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says, it's a shame for a man to have long hair. You know, remember the issue in 1 Corinthians 11 was that men were, were leading prayer with their heads covered and women with their heads uncovered. It wasn't just it was about men and women. And there it's related, the, the, the phrase, it's a shame, relates to the way the culture perceived it. So it could be that, that something's going on in Corinth where, where the women are behaving, you know, in a way that is very free, is completely free for them as believers, but they were going so far in their freedom that they were disgracing themselves in the culture. It could be that, but we don't really know. If it is that, then it doesn't apply today because we're not in that culture. Secondly, it could mean that they were, one comment says, could mean that they were, it could mean that it's referring to the weighing of prophecy. I don't believe that, but some scholars have suggested it. Paul is actually saying women shouldn't weigh prophecy. But again, I'm not quite sure where that comes from. Some people are saying it could have been that in Corinth, uh, where the suggestion is that, like in some Eastern churches today and in Jewish synagogues, uh, some people say, well, it could be that the men and women were in a separate... We were in Bangladesh last two weeks ago. We went to church uh, on the uh, you know, Bangladeshi church, and the men are on one side and the women are on the other side. You know, and if you go to churches in the Middle East and in Asia, uh, that is the case, because uh, men and women in society are... are you know, it's different to here. So it could be that, it's a, that you know, the women on one side, the men on the other side. It could be that the women weren't kind of getting it, perhaps because of, they didn't speak Latin or Greek as well as the local dialect, and were shouting out to their husbands, what does that mean? You know, and it could be that it's that Paul is saying, you know, don't behave like that in church. If you want to know the answer, wait till you get home, ask your husbands then. Or it could be that they were, inter- they were interpreting tongues or maybe saying something, uh, weighing prophecy, and they were being a bit personal in their remarks about their husband's prophecies. You know, they're going to be saying, oh, he's not like that at home kind of thing. <laughs> uh, I don't know. We just don't know. Um, it just, but the point is, it could be just that they're chattering in, you know, there's a lot of gossip going on and if they didn't understand what was going on there was a woman's side and a men's side and maybe the women were just kind of doing their own thing uh, and the men were just doing their own thing we just don't know so sorry, don't know what the answer to that is but whatever it means it can't mean a blanket silence and by the way, isn't it fascinating that the people who take it to mean a blanket silence take that and say, oh yeah, women mustn't say anything. We must keep to the Bible, the literal word of the, every translation is absolutely right. That's what we're going to do. And then when it comes to those very same people say, and we don't believe in prophecy, and we're certainly not having any tongues speaking in our church kind of thing. You know, we need to take scripture, don't we? So, what can I say? Whatever it means, Paul's word to us and to them are to be grown-ups as we approach our thinking regarding worship. 
We need to think with a wider perspective. And if you take that point, it would apply to women behaving in an inappropriate way in church, wouldn't it? That scripture needs to shape our understanding. We we need to want to see seekers and unbelievers experience the living God in our worship and gatherings. And we don't want to do anything that would prevent that from happening. So again, if the women were shouting out in church, that would be preventing that happening. Same principle applies. Think with a wider perspective. Think about why we meet. We share and we use the gifts God has given us. Why? To build up the whole community, the whole body. Not to make us individually look good. And we all have a part to play in this, so let's expect it. And thirdly, let's think about what God is like. Grow up in our thinking and realise that we can reflect his glory, his beauty, his greatness, his holiness, his justice, his peace, his love, his glory, in the way we are when we're together worshipping him. Peter, over to you. Thanks.